Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We've got a great guest, but first, a quick thank you to our sponsor. The Real Estate Espresso Podcast is brought to you by International Coffee Farms. International Coffee Farms grows and sells specialty coffee in Boquete, Panama. They now have 11 fully operational coffee farms and they are 100% sold out. They are accepting reservations for farm number 12. If the idea of owning a safe, diversified offshore investment is intriguing to you, check out International Coffee Farms at internationalcoffeefarms.com. That's internationalcoffeefarms.com. We are back. Here on the Weekend Edition, we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Oakbrook, Illinois, just outside Chicago. Welcome to the show, Michael Flight. Thank you very much, Victor. It's a pleasure to uh, meet with you here on the, the podcast. It's a fantastic podcast that you've got. Thank you so much. Mike, we've got to know each other over the last couple of years, and I'm particularly intrigued about your area of specialty. It's an area that is certainly getting a lot of, let's say, controversy uh, as the world of retail shifts around. And I'd love to start with, how did you get into this particular asset class? Well, I've been doing shopping centers since probably 1986 or 87, somewhere around there. And the reason why I got into it is because I was going into commercial real estate brokerage and I saw that if you got a relationship with a tenant, you could do repeat business with them instead of like an office building, you would have to do a tremendous amount of cold calling. And so uh, with the retailer expanding in the Chicago market, you could do five, 10, 15 deals with them. So I guess I got into the retail space because I'm a little bit lazy. So I didn't want to do all that cold calling. (laughs) I love that. You know, sometimes following that path of least resistance is definitely a way to go, if only because you see the path that others don't. You know, it's uh, it's been very good for us. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy a lot of different aspects of it. It's shopping part of it. It's entertainment part of it with uh, restaurants. It's community building. So it's probably shopping centers are sometimes the most visible parts of a community. So when you do a good job with redeveloping it, it has a big impact on the community. And also we've gotten kind of into showbiz with it because uh, we've uh, had one, actually one shopping center was in the movie Wayne's World. And uh, it was also in the movie Wanted with Angelina Jolie and Morgan Freeman. And then we had another shopping center that didn't do so well. And the Sopranos would shoot in the food court there because uh, they would know they wouldn't be bothered because there wasn't a whole lot of customers in that shopping center. How so funny. We eventually ended up tearing that one down and um, putting in a strip center. The world of retail is obviously going through a tremendous amount of change. You know, We talk about the most visible parts of that, whether it's Sears, JCPenney, Macy's now shrinking into greatness, so to speak. And that's got to have an impact. What are your thoughts? I mean, retail is not going away, but what does that mean for the shopping mall owner? Well, you know, I um, th- there's a number of things that I, I mentioned to a lot of people, and retail has been constantly evolving since, you know, there was a Main Street retailer, and then at the time, Montgomery Wards and, and Sears were the category killer. They were the Amazons of their day with the Sears catalog, and then Sears started expanding, and then you had chain stores expanding, and then you, you got into the shopping center business, and then malls came along in the 1950s. So 
it's a constantly evolving thing. I can name tenants that we had back in the, the early 1990s, 1980s that are, that are no longer around. And it's because they're, they don't serve a purpose for people shopping there or they haven't changed with the times. And then there's other tenants like Walmart that started out kind of as a five and dime, almost, you know, Walmart was a dollar store originally. And then they started expanding and they became this distribution behemoth. And now they're the largest grocer in the world. So if you keep changing and you keep on what you're doing, we think that retail has a viable place in anybody's portfolio. The other thing is, is that pure play internet really isn't much more than 10% of the total shopping volume. Another example that just happened last week, Amazon said they're going to actually start expanding into the grocery business and buying existing local grocers because they need to get closer to people. So retailing, there's always been omni-channel. There was physical stores, there was the catalogs, and catalogs actually are pretty close in volume to what pure play internet retailers are doing too. So we see that going forward, there's going to be a shakeout. There was an overexpansion of a lot of things. And now people are going to have to compete on service. They're going to have to compete on the web. They're going to have to compete with you know people wanting to do pickup. It's going to be an all of the above strategy. If you compare Amazon with other retailers, let's say if I go to a Safeway or an A&P and I buy a head of lettuce, that's a pretty anonymous transaction, and the retailer knows nothing about me. But if I go to Whole Foods and I give them my Amazon Prime account to get a little bit of a discount, now they know everything about me. They know what my shopping tastes are. They know that if I bought a bunch of kale, that I'm probably likely to buy some tofu along with it. They know so much more about the customer than the average retailer. And I think that's got to change the landscape. You know, I, I do agree with you, but, you know, to a certain extent, most of the larger supermarkets, you know, with their loyalty cards, Target at one point, there there was a, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but they knew when uh, somebody was pregnant in the house before those people did because their their buying patterns changed. So a lot of these companies, as I said before, Walmart really became the behemoth that it did because it started doing data analytics. It started you know merchandising for each particular area. And so I do agree with you that uh, Amazon really has a, a lot of stuff. Um, they have a great you know, intuitive website. So that suggests for you to buy more stuff. And I really have never seen that duplicated on any other website. Uh, but I do think that, you know, some of the bricks and mortar guys are, are right behind them. And um, I don't know if they necessarily have to put that huge of an investment in it. So let's, let's shift over and talk a little bit about your strategy. What is the play? Are we talking value add, buying distressed assets and, and turning them around? What's, what's the play? Well, in the past, we've been heavily value-add. We've taken, as I said, everything from malls, emptied them out, knocked them down, and, and rebuilt them to rebuilding anywhere from 25% to um, 50% of a shopping center. What we've decided to do is, because those were all institutional joint ventures, and we're, we're still going to pursue those deals, but we're also opening up our investments to individual investors and we're trying to keep it a lot more simple. So there's a small amount of value add and there's a, there's a pop in the cash flow, but we're buying pretty well occupied shopping centers with good credit tenants and 
we evaluate the tenants, whether they're, you know, how much exposure they have to um, online shopping and the rest of it. And that's part of our, we can take a shopping center and re-merchandise it so that it'll be less, you know, vulnerable to those type of tenants. But we're looking for more cash flow plays right now for uh, investments that we're bringing individual investors into. What types of tenants would represent a pure cash flow play? I mean, apart from a retailer that's just spitting off tons of cash like Apple, uh, what kinds of tenants are you targeting? What types of properties are you targeting to achieve that? We look at um, supermarket anchored shopping centers. We look at you know discount department store anchored shopping centers. We're actually looking at a number of what's called shadow anchored shopping centers. So it will have a Walmart super center or a Walmart grocer, and then the rest of the shopping center is what we would own. And so the Walmart is the draw for the shopping center. And um, we find that we can buy those uh, at an advantageous cap rate. You know, it would deliver cash flow. We have in the past, and we are still looking at a few where where there's some heavy lifts. We uh, are in the process of evaluating a deal right now that has a 50,000 square foot vacancy. And it also has a lot of um, out parcels, which are those restaurants and banks and things along the front. And we're looking at subdividing it up. So we think we can buy the shopping center at around an eight and a half, nine cap, which would come out to about $100 per square foot. And then we could sell off those out parcel buildings, you know, somewhere between a five and a half to a six and a half cap, uh, which equates to a Three hundred to four hundred dollar per square foot sales price. So, we would be buying wholesale and then selling retail. We've seen a few instances where some larger players like Rio Can have bought shopping centers, torn them down, and redeveloped them as residential properties. You know, sometimes putting high rise buildings on them and found a way to create value because there's very few parcels of land big enough to do large developments like that and shopping centers sometimes repurpose could represent that kind of an opportunity. Is that something that you've been looking at at all? We have done that in the past. So we had a uh, 900,000 square foot mall in Poughkeepsie, New York. We redeveloped that into a, uh, a strip center. We did the same thing with a mall in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We just emptied the center out and then flipped it to, to do a Walmart. We have evaluated uh, because some of the larger centers are very good and well located so that it makes a lot of sense. There was a deal that um, we didn't do two years ago in Scottsdale and uh, I was just out there this past week and I'm glad we didn't do it but we were going to buy the shopping center sell off the back end to you know a national apartment developer and they would have you know, develop the back end of it, and then we would have redeveloped the front end of it. Uh, but that's the type of thing that we will look for. That is more of a heavy value add. It's almost a development deal. It, it takes a, a long lead time to, to put all that stuff together, and there's a little risk in terms of rezoning and also uh, some of the other things like the neighborhood might not want it. There's additional risk there. So when we're talking about a value add, the value add is it's a higher return, but there's also a lot more risk to it versus the cash flow, which you're going in and you can tell what you're going to get right then and there. And then you know that you can improve it by leasing up some vacant space or replacing some tenants with some other tenants. Many of our listeners are 
medium experience investors. They're not necessarily operating at the same level that you are. So I suspect that for many of you listening right now, you're thinking, man, this sounds like it's in the stratosphere compared to where I am. What are your sources of capital? Help bridge the gap here for the small to medium-sized investor who's maybe having a hard time grasping what you're talking about. There's a few different moving pieces. It's basically the same as any other type of investment. Uh, The tenants pay rent. Um, The nice thing about uh, shopping centers is they also pay what's called the triple net. So they pay the real estate taxes, insurance, and common area maintenance. So a medium-sized investor could start out with a smaller center. Let's say it had a 7-Eleven and a few other things. I know a lot of people will buy just a, um, a, a straight single-tenant triple net deal. And that's really easy because basically you get the security of a long-term lease and you can go and get financing on that long-term lease. Let's say you and I together found a jack-in-the-box and we knew that jack-in-the-box was doing pretty well there we know what jack-in-the-box credit rating is. So we could just go to the bank and say, or even insurance companies, but definitely local banks, because they're lending on the strength of that, the credit of that tenant. And usually there's a a little less leverage, especially nowadays, uh, lenders are are just concerned about retail because they're reading the same papers that, that everybody else is. So we've been finding that our leverage is 65 to 70% loan to value. If it's a really good single tenant triple net deal, uh, lenders will go a little bit higher on that because if they, they really like it. Obviously, one of the major things that's happening, you know, for example, I see these kind of opportunities cross my desk literally every day. I see a lot of bank branches. I see a lot of dollar stores. I see a lot of these types of opportunities continue uh, drug stores uh, another one very very frequent and yet we know that you know the right aid is going to shake out at least 600 stores over the next year so i wouldn't want to be holding that particular property how do you protect against that well you, you have to take a look at what that particular store is doing in that particular trade area and you have to go on a macro level and say Uh, For example, uh, Dollar Tree bought Family Dollar, and at the time it seemed like a good idea, but now Family Dollar isn't doing that well, so they're going to start closing Family Dollar stores. So you have to, like going into it, know a little bit better. You know, there's there's certain tenants that will, will probably be around. So as you said, Rite Aid is probably the weak sister to CVS and Walgreens. I've got a Walgreens that the lease was completed in 1955. There, there was actually no zip codes at the time that they completed the lease and it was on onion skin. And that Walgreens, uh, we renewed in 2010 and with options, it extends out another 60 years. It, it's basically like buying a bond, but you get the benefit of uh, depreciation and uh, you also get a higher rate than, than the bond. So you get a much higher return than buying a bond and you basically get the credit behind the tenant. You just have to underwrite it. Um, you have to look at what their credit ratings are. You have to look at you know what type of market they're in. What are they doing to change their business going forward to make it much more appealing? And so the guys like CVS and Walgreens are actually buying pharmacy fulfillment places. And in the case of CVS, they've 
actually merged with an insurance company. They're making bets to be around the next you know, 50 to 100 years. I love that. Well, I think what this is saying to me, and for the listeners at home, you should be getting this as well. This is not the do-it-yourself model for real estate investing. You've got to go into any business, doesn't matter what the business is, with the right people, with the right expertise, and this is no exception. Here, the level of knowledge that you need to acquire to properly underwrite. When we say underwriting, what we mean is analyzing it to the point where you're prepared to take the risk. Underwriting is not just running a spreadsheet. Underwriting is truly analyzing and putting your name on the bottom right-hand corner in signature and wet ink saying, I stand behind these financial projections. And that's a very different way of thinking than simply saying, I'm going to make a passive investment. So you've got to definitely work with the right people. And Mike, I'm, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from you. And I, am I going to see you next week on the Summit at Sea? Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to uh, hanging out with you and uh, all the rest of the you know, find people that are involved with that cruise. I'm actually bringing my uh, 19-year-old son, too. Hopefully, uh, I can shove him your way so you can um, impart a ton of knowledge to him. Fantastic. I look forward to it. Well, if folks want to get in touch, what's the best way? Uh, they can go to our website. It's uh, concordiarealty.com. That's C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-A-R-E-A-L-T-Y.com. They go to the contact page. Uh, somebody from our organization would get in touch with them right away. Uh, we love uh, educating people about the retail space. Uh, we have been doing mentorship programs with a few people, and we've also assisted uh, a few, uh, and we're looking to doing it more. Uh, passive investors, even if it's not our deal, we feel that knowledgeable investors about retail are, are the best investors. For the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Michael Flight at ConcordiaRealty.com. That's ConcordiaRealty.com. And thank you, Mike, for joining us this weekend. Have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.